As the first female Prime Minister of Australia, Julia Gillard held resilience in spades. Never had another leader faced the same level of scrutiny she immediately encountered. In this episode, and with insights from her new book, Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons, Julia shares great advice for women following in her footsteps, the advice she wished she'd received. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Julia. So I want to talk about your book, which I'm going to introduce in a moment, which is about female leadership. But before I do that, let's just talk about leadership per se. I'm really interested in what you think about the current models and examples of leadership that we see at the moment. It's really easy to be pessimistic when you wake up and you see Trump and Putin and the uh, failures in leadership in Lebanon, for example, that led to that terrible explosion earlier in the month. Are you pessimistic or optimistic about leadership generally? I am an optimist over time. I think we've been through a very difficult period in the world uh, in terms of leadership and leadership styles. I think in the lead up to this pandemic, when we looked at global affairs, what we were seeing overwhelmingly was the rise of strong man style leadership, blustering leadership, didn't care about the facts, you know, would just claim that, you know, black was white or purple was pink or whatever. And when the actual facts were put out, then a sort of shrugging of the shoulders and a disregard for the truth. I do think that one of the consequences of the pandemic is that that style of leadership and its many flaws are being held up to the light and the role of expertise and government is coming back to the fore. So in the lead up to this pandemic, I think a lot of people would have said to themselves, what does it really matter to me? Government doesn't really touch my life. I don't care about it. A lot of people would have uh, watched experts on their TV screen and had that little internal voice saying, oh, you know, everybody's always trying to tell us what to do. Why should I listen to them? Whereas now we've been reminded that good government is central, that in a crisis it can be the difference between living and dying. And we've also been reminded about the value of expertise and we've all found ourselves hanging off the words of every chief medical officer and infectious diseases expert. So I actually think they're good long-term signs for leadership. So I wanted to move now to female leadership. So you've recently written with the former Nigerian finance minister um, and also she was previously the managing director of the World Bank, uh, Ngonzi Okonja-Iwila, a book called Woman and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons. Now, you're known for talking about this subject. Um, you know, you're, you're involved in the Global Institute for Female Leadership. But why now? What was the impetus for writing this? It was a project that Ngozi and I uh, talked about over a long period of time and just ultimately said, we've got to do this. Um, I first met Ngozi when I was Prime Minister and she came to the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which we hosted in Perth. But I really got to know her in my years since politics, chairing the Global Partnership for Education, whilst she chairs Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance. And so we would end up at all of these international meetings together, uh, talking about our various causes. And we struck up a friendship, we struck up a conversation about our own experiences as women leaders, and then looking around the world, what was happening for other women. 
And often we would find ourselves uh, talking with a real sense of frustration, like what is going on? Why is women's leadership still being received in such a sexist way, so much analysed through the prism of gender? And then Hillary lost and we finally said to each other, we've got to do something about this. And the decision we made was to write the book. Both of us, I think, had felt a strong sense of guilt that we weren't in our busy lives able to mentor enough women, to share our experiences with enough women. So the book is a very structured attempt to do that and hopefully it can get far and wide. It's a great read and you've got some fantastic interviews. And I must say, one of the things I liked about it was you've got a really good mix of women in there. You've got women who I'd consider quite well known, uh, particularly in the Western world, Jacinta Ardern, Hillary Clinton, Theresa May. And then you've also got women who I would say in the Western world probably have a slightly lower profile. Um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, you know, previously the president of Liberia and Joyce Bander, previously the president of Malawi. How did you choose the woman? Was it, was it friendships? Did you know them? How did you, how did you come up with that particular group? We always wanted this to be a truly global book and one of the propositions we were trying to interrogate is how similar are women's experiences across culture and context? Are they very different or are there aspects of them that are the same? And so that led us to look for a global representation and so across the eight women uh, we do have some of the you know richest countries in the world, Erna Solberg, the Prime Minister from Norway, for example, Norway being a very rich country, household names, as you point out, uh, Hillary Clinton, Theresa May, Jacinda Ardern, uh, Christine Lagarde, who is well known to people from the IMF. Uh, But we wanted to make sure that there was a representation of different contexts and cultures. So that led us to Africa and also to uh, South America, to Michelle Bachelet from Chile. Are their experiences different because they come from such different cultures? What are the similarities? What are the differences? There are things that are hugely different. I mean, Michelle Bachelet was imprisoned and tortured uh, under the Pinochet regime. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf suffered periods of imprisonment and exile. Uh, She was at one point sentenced to such a long period of time in a very tough prison that she thought she was unlikely to survive the sentence. Uh, Joyce Bander talks in the book about surviving an assassination attempt. So, you know, in Australia and in so many other peaceful and prosperous parts of the world, uh, women stepping forward for leadership don't have to worry about challenges like that. But interestingly, when it came to gender, uh, there were many experiences these women had in common, Um, a great deal of focus on appearance, on family structures, a sense that they were on a tightrope, that if they came across as too strong, too tough, people would react adversely to that. But if they came across as too caring, too nurturing, people would go, oh, she's far too weak to lead the country. So there were a number of things that were truly in common, uh, which leads us to the conclusion that sexism in many ways and its manifestations are universal. They're problems in all parts of our world and need to be attacked understanding that. When I was reading the descriptor of the book, it says, um, by presenting the lessons that can be learned for women leaders, the book provides a roadmap of essential knowledge to inspire us all and an action agenda for change that allows women to take control and combat gender bias. A roadmap of essential knowledge. What do you wish you knew then that you know now? 
<laughs> well, I certainly uh, wish I'd had a book like this when I was starting out on my leadership journey. Uh, what we're endeavouring to do is bring to women who are aspiring themselves and people generally a sense of what the global research is telling us about how we perceive women leaders and much of that research is done in laboratory style conditions it's done in universities where groups of people have got together and presented with various images of women leading and then asked to react uh, we wanted to take that research and to find out how much of it lived in the real world, hence the interviews with eight women leaders and the contrast um, and commonalities between the research and lived experience. And where that leads us to is a series of lessons where we're saying to women, go for leadership. If you're motivated, go for it. And we don't just mean in politics, we mean in all walks of life, but be aware that there will be things that happen to you because you are a woman. And because we expose those things in the book, we hope it's a contribution to helping women war game those moments in advance rather than having to respond in real time. And for me, in my own leadership journey, particularly ending up being the first woman to be Deputy Prime Minister and then the first woman uh, to be Prime Minister, I didn't have the handbook, so I was inevitably responding in real time. And you always do things, you know, more deeply and thoughtfully if you've had time to prepare. What should female leaders be doing now, if you like, to make it better for the next generation? Well, we make the point in the book that creating a, a better world for the next generation is uh, a challenge and a task for all of us, for women, for men, uh, for the news media, for everyone. And we try and put tips in the book for um, women, men, journalists, you know, people who have got voices uh, and the potential to bring change. What I think we need to do if I was going to snapshot it is two things. One, we need to think about the structures of organisations in our society, whether that be parliaments or businesses or civil society organisations, and ask ourselves the question, are these still designed to best fit with traditional male lives? Do they have barriers there for women? that we can clear out of the way, so looking at the structures. But second, we also need to look at the stereotypes. The research and the lived experience of these women leaders says quite clearly that all of us have got whispering in the back of our brain stereotypes about what women should be like, what they should be like as leaders, and because we hold those stereotypes, we don't end up giving women leaders an equal go. So we need to get them out of the backs of our brains, and that's only going to happen if we expose them to the light and talk about them. Staying on that topic, you mentioned there about the idea of you know voices in order to bring change. Are you encouraged by... Uh, movements like Me Too, for example, in terms of how much stronger the female voice is? Oh, very much so. And, you know, directly on this question of women's leadership, I am heartened by the contemporary nature of the dialogue. You know, when I was Prime Minister, you know, I was sworn into office around 10 years ago, 
when I was Prime Minister, the usual analysis of the sort of political commentariat was that no part of how I was being treated as Prime Minister could be explained by gender. I was just being treated like every other Prime Minister had ever been treated. And here we are 10 years later and looking at women in leadership, that isn't said now. People do expose the gender bias. Uh, for example, with Kamala Harris recently being selected to be the vice presidential candidate, as soon as things were starting to be said about her, there was media reporting about how much of what is being said is actually only being said because she's a woman. So the conversation about gender bias is happening right alongside the conversation about her potential for leadership as vice president. So I think that's a sea change and that gives me a lot of heart. One of the things that comes up in the in the book, and it sort of relates to this idea of gender bias and gender stereotyping, is I think quite early on in the book, when you're looking at the framework for the conversations, you ask the question, would we have a better outcome if we had an equal number of male and female leaders? And the conversations and the ideas behind that is that, you know, women are more caring and more empathic traditionally. And so therefore, if we had more female leaders, we would get a better outcome. How does that sit with you? I mean, part of it, when I think about it, it feels like it bakes in gender stereotyping when we talk about female leaders like that. Is, do you have a concern with that? Oh, yes, I do. And I do think that it bakes in some stereotyping and we try and unpack a bit of that in the book. We go as far as talking about neuroscience, you know, are men and women's brains really different? Are men from Mars and women from Venus? And we end up concluding that a lot of that is actually neurosexism. That's just not true. Uh, but men and women are socialised differently. And as a result of that socialisation, we do think that there are different styles in the contemporary world. But if, when, optimistically, we reach that gender equal world, I think it will be possible to see uh, women and men who lead in all different sorts of ways. You will see women who are very command and control style leaders, brook no nonsense, uh, engage in little consultation, just point the direction forward and say, follow me, this is where we're going. And you'll see male leaders who are empathetic, caring, very much putting the team first rather than their needs first and we will no longer say, look, we expected the the woman to be the caring one and the man to be the command and control leader because we will have shed those gender stereotypes. But we're not there yet and as a result, uh, the leadership that we give most permission to for women is leadership that combines strength and empathy. And the research clearly shows that if a woman leader doesn't get that combination of strength and empathy right, she pays a price. Um, is there enough research being done in this area? Is the research getting better? What is the research telling us, if you like? There's terrific research, but there needs to be more. And the fact that there needs to be more first struck me when I was writing my initial book called My Story, which was about my time in politics. And when I sat down to write that book, I did want to write about gender, about what had happened to me as the first woman to be prime minister. 
And I wanted to do that in a broader way than just a sort of, you know, this happened, then that happened, then the next thing happened. And so I started studying the global research base on women and leadership and found some amazing eye-opening pieces of research, but also found that it was much thinner than I would have expected. And to try and deepen that research base is what led me to King's College London and to pitching to them the idea that we create a global institute for women's leadership. And here we are a few years later with the institute up and running and now coming to Australia. So I think that there's much we still need to do to understand all of the layers of gender bias in leadership and also the evidence based best ways of getting rid of those barriers and when I'm using the word leadership there you know we are looking at so much more than just you know the the glass ceiling the barrier between being deputy CEO or CEO Um, we are talking about every point in a woman's work life journey where she was treated differently and lesser than a man. Can you recall what did you initially find surprising when you started looking at that research when you were doing your first book? Oh, look, uh, in, in the first book, I mean, I looked at some of the research about uh, likability and leadership. So uh, this is the research base that tells us that we are quite likely to conclude that a woman leader isn't very likable uh, because we've got these um, stereotypes in our brain. Women are supposed to be caring, sharing, nurturing, putting others before self, not ambitious for self. If we see a woman who is clearly ambitious, who has fought hard to get a leadership position, then we quickly conclude that she's given up on empathy and nurturing. So she's pretty prickly, pretty unlikable, um, even a bit of a bitch. And we controversially use that uh, saying, a bit of a bitch, as the chapter title for one of the chapters in the book where we probe around this research. But what was lacking and continues to be lacking, and we are trying to make contributions to all of this, is what's the best evidence that we have about how to clear all of those stereotypes out of the way? Mm, Yeah, because it is about that practical, what can you do about it once you've discovered the problem? So so let's look at that then, because obviously the book is quite practical. It's got um, lots of lessons. So I've picked a few of them to discuss. So the first one um, you say, or one of the first ones you say is to expect criticism on your appearance. So I wanted to know, does that manifest the same for all female leaders? Um, And what do you do about it? Uh, Each of our female leaders uh, talked about appearance questions. Each of them was aware that they would be under more scrutiny than a man. To what extent they felt that was a burden varied. Uh, So our African women leaders uh, decided that they would dress in traditional dress That was controversial initially for Joyce Bander in Malawi. People were saying to her, no one is going to treat you seriously on the international stage unless you're in Western-style suits. You can't wear traditional African clothes. Uh, But she decided to stick with the traditional African clothes and that ultimately was well-received by the community. 
um, we went from that kind of experience to Hillary Clinton's experience where she talks about losing 24 days of campaigning time because of the amount of time she needed to spend in hair and makeup, getting her hair and makeup done every day to go campaigning for the presidency and knowing that if she uh, varied from that standard on any given day that she would be the subject of criticism uh, through to Theresa May, who's always been very interested in fashion and sort of didn't resent the time taken to choose her clothes because it's one of her hobbies, uh, and talked positively about how young women have engaged with her and what first got them interested in politics was looking at her and watching what she was wearing, and that gave them a sense of connection and that sense of connection then broadened into a deeper pursuit of politics. So uh, everybody was aware of the differential scrutiny, but the reactions to it varied. One of the other uh, lessons that you, you 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 look at is when is when you when should you make a decision to call out sexism? Now, I actually listened to your interview with Virginia Trioli um, before this, and you said in that interview, "I missed the moment where I had the greatest amount of political capital to have the discussion we needed to have," and it was in relation to this point. When do you call it out? Like, when should a woman call it out? I think the question really needs to be phrased, when should anybody call it out? Because we make the point in the book, and here is a real message for men, uh, that if men call out sexism, the research shows not only will their contribution have more impact than a woman doing it, but the views that people take of that man will be more favourable and that will show in promotion possibilities. So we look at a man calling out sexism and we accept what he says because we don't think that there's any vested interest in him calling it out. There's no sort of conflict of interest. And we then identify him as the sort of person who's prepared to go an extra yard in pursuit of what is morally right. And that gets a seal of approval, a tick of approval. So interesting uh, lesson there for all the, the men listening. There is no downside here for becoming a champion and being prepared to call out sexism. For women, you know, I certainly walked away from my prime ministership with the lesson that it would have been better to call it out earlier. I made the naive error that the maximum reaction to me being the first woman would manifest in the early days of my prime ministership and then it would sort of work its way through and out of the system and that didn't happen. So I missed the early moments that I could have used to put a spotlight on the sexism. But it's really impossible to say to a woman, always, you know, call it out early because she may not be feeling empowered in that moment uh, to do what is necessary. You know, these things do have to be judged against the circumstances. Uh, but our general advice would be earlier is better than later and getting others around you to join in the cause of calling it out, including men, is a good strategy. Another point that you pick out there, and it comes through with the conversations you have with a woman, is um, to work with your partner on managing family and success. That actually made me think about a common comment Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the author of Lean In, made, where she said, the choice you make of your partner is actually the biggest prediction of how successful your life will be. And her point was, 
we don't bring that home to people early enough, you know, when they're making a choice around their partner. Um, what, what did you pick up from those conversations with women around this issue of uh, having a partner and having a family life and combining it with a really high level career? Yeah, our women uh, came at this question from all different sorts of perspectives. Obviously, I don't have children. Theresa May doesn't have children. She um, uh, want, very much wanted to, but she and her husband weren't able to have children. Uh, then, of course, you know, Hillary Clinton um, has Chelsea, and Chelsea was in the spotlight during Bill Clinton's presidency, but by the time Hillary herself was running, Chelsea was an adult. Uh, and that was the experience of a number of our women leaders too. But Joyce Bander, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf talk about surviving abusive marriages. Uh, they talk about some of the hard decisions they needed to make in the impoverished environments from which they came, including Ellen Johnson Sirleaf leaving her children uh, with grandparents, including when her youngest boy was uh, only one year old, uh, leaving them for a period of time so that she could go to the United States and get educated uh, at a tertiary level because she knew that opportunity would never come again. So some really severe hard choices uh, through to Erna Solberg, who is combined being a mother with her parliamentary career, and Jacinda Ardern, who's the second woman in the world to have a baby while she's serving as a national leader, um, talking to them about the practicalities and both of them uh, certainly highlighted how important it's been that their partners have uh, wanted to work with them and support them in their careers. So Jacinda's partner, Clark, is the main caregiver for their baby, Neve. Erna Solberg talks about the role her husband played and without that she would not have been able to continue her political journey all the way to the Prime Ministership. So I do definitely agree with Cheryl Sandberg's words that these choices do matter. And Gozi, who has children herself, makes the point that it's important to talk all of this through with your partner before the children come along rather than uh, try and deal with it once they're there to ensure that there will be an equal approach to caregiving from both parents. Julia, thank you very much for your time on this. You've left me feeling much more optimistic than when I started talking to you. <laughs> well, I'm very pleased that's been the result. That's fantastic. Thanks for joining me for the Leadership Lessons, the female perspective you need for the decade ahead. This episode was produced by Lisa Gebelagin. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast player and please leave us a rating. For more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au and I hope you can join me for the next episode.